welcome back to the Real World Podcast. Today we've got a special episode which is entirely based on the COP26 uh, conference happening at the moment in Glasgow. So we're going to start by covering the Paris Agreement, which was um, the latest COP that had the biggest outcomes that are being referenced quite constantly. So we thought it'd be quite helpful to understand um, what happened there. And then we will talk about the run up to the summit and things that were in the news surrounding COP before it started. And then we'll go through a day by day run through of what happened at COP so far, because obviously it's not over yet. So we're just going to do a summary of what they've um, agreed and spoken about so far. And then we will look at some uh, specific people like Greta Thunberg, David Attenborough and Prince William, who have done important talks at the conference. So I'll hand over to Esme. So I'm going to be covering um, the Paris Agreement, which um, is very significant and you probably have heard about it before, but I'm going to quickly cover uh, what, what it was and what was agreed. So the Paris Agreement united almost all of the world's nations for the first time um, in a single agreement on cutting the greenhouse gas emissions which are causing global warming. So it came into force on the 4th of November 2016. And some key things that were agreed in the Paris Agreement was to pursue efforts to limit global temperature rises to 1.5 degrees Celsius and to keep them well below two degrees above pre-industrial times. Um, Also to limit greenhouse gas emissions from human activity to the same levels that trees, soils and oceans can absorb naturally. This is known as net zero and it means that uh, carbon is being released and removed at the same rate. Then to, um, for each country to set its own emission reduction targets, reviewed every five years to raise ambitions and make sure these targets are being met. And finally, for rich countries to help poorer nations by providing funding, known as climate finance, to adapt climate change and switch to renewable energy. So why is the Paris Agreement so significant for COP26? A lot of the key discussions in Glasgow will be about whether countries are doing what they promised in Paris. And when it was signed, governments admitted that targets set would not limit global warming to 1.5 degrees. Because of this, they agreed to update them by 2020, which, because COP26 was delayed by a year, is now 2021. All countries should have submitted new targets for reducing emissions ahead of Glasgow, but many have not come up with improved commitments and some major economies have no net zero target in place, meaning the world is not currently on track to limit climate change to 1.5 degrees Celsius. So what about the promises to help poorer countries? The Paris Agreement restated a commitment made in 2009 that the world's richer countries should provide $100 billion dollars annually by 2020 to help developing nations deal with the effects of climate change and build greener economies. However, in 2019, only 79.6 billion was raised. What's more, a recent expert report for the United Nations said the goal would not be reached until 2023, even though a new and more ambitious target is supposed to be set for 2025. For many countries, this will be the biggest issue to resolve at COP26 and the very poorest countries are demanding action. So, did the Paris Agreement go far enough? The plan was to create a climate-neutral world by the middle of the century. That means reducing greenhouse gas emissions as much as possible and compensating for any remaining emissions by removing them from the atmosphere, 
using natural or artificial processes. The average global temperature has already risen by about 1.1 degrees, and scientists say action must be stepped up if we have any chance to, cut, to curb dangerous climate change. They're also saying that limiting the temperature rise to no more than 1.5 degrees would help millions of people avoid the dangerous impacts of extreme weather and prevent sea level rises that would see small island states sink beneath the waves. So there was a discussion just before COP26 that countries were maybe not agreeing to the targets that they set in the Paris Agreement. So this is a question I'm posing to my fellow co-hosts. <laughs> Do you believe that there should be a sort of global police or system put in place to force countries um, to ensure that they are doing their bit for climate change? Okay, well, I think the idea of global police in principle would be a, a really great idea because, as we've seen, countries like China and India just really aren't sticking to the targets that they've pledged. But then the problem is that these countries are so powerful and no matter what we do, it's, it's really difficult to make a difference in places like this. So I think perhaps if we can make differences in smaller nations, then it would work. But in, in larger places like China and India and the USA, it's just incredibly different, difficult to be able to make any kind of significant difference and to make them make these pledges and meet what their goals are. Yeah, I guess with the global police, it's hard because there, was always be, there would always be the question of who would it be? And there'll always be someone who will try and overthrow them and go against that. And I guess the UN is kind of trying to act as a global police, even though there's like no one particularly in charge because it's a uniting of the nations. But um, yeah, I feel like in theory it would be good, but in practice it'd be hard to pull off maybe. Very interesting. Well, um, leading on from maybe countries that wouldn't listen or would make it hard to have a global police, Russia and China uh, did not turn up for the COP26 summit in Glasgow. And I had another question <laughs> for the rest, for our hosts. How effective do you think that COP26 can be if Russia and China aren't attending when China is or was the biggest emitter of fossil fuel carbon dioxide emissions in 2020, accounting for 30.64% of global emissions? And Russia was fourth with 4.53% of global emissions. I mean, I think that it's limited the progress that can be made because of that reason. And China especially has such a massive impact on the global environment. And with pollution and climate change, it affects everybody. So it can't just be accepted that China won't come and it's their own loss because everyone is going to be affected. But I think it's good that everyone else is still going and still trying to make agreements and move forward, even though like you would think their hope might be slightly diminished if China is like one of the biggest emitters not there. Um, nice. And <laughs> just before the COP26 um, conference started, the British Prime Minister, who I would hope you all know, Boris Johnson, did an interview saying that the world was at a minute to midnight in the countdown um, on the clock on waiting to combat climate change. So he was speaking to world leaders um, as they arrived for the landmark COP26 climate change conference in Glasgow. And he spoke to the BBC and said that we needed to move from aspiration to action to slow global warming. 
He then added that the summit was a critical moment for him and said an ambitious outcome was still in the balance. Um, as part of this, Boris Johnson confirmed that he didn't want to see a controversial proposed mine in Cumbria go ahead. So this was a proposed coal mine that before COP26, Boris Johnson decided that he would not endorse. This is quite interesting because obviously Britain is hosting the climate change conference. So Sophie, how far do you think that uh, Johnson's actions were performative? Um, I think particularly the speech that he gave about how we are very close to a critical level in climate change was particularly performative, especially because as much as it's great that we halt the build of a coal mine, really that's not what's going to make a difference. We need to work together with other countries. And I think a lot of what he was saying was just a lot of words that aren't really helping. I mean, a lot of people do know how critical it is that we halt climate change, but in the end, those words aren't going to help. And what really is going to help is working with other countries to make a difference. And I think this idea of performative climate change, of his performative climate change speech, brings up the idea of greenwashing. So greenwashing, which is also known as green sheen, is a form of marketing spin in which green PR and green marketing are deceptively used to persuade the public that an organisation's products, aims and policies are environmentally friendly. So, for example, a cleaning company may make their bottle green, but not exactly show what this actually means, or a clothing company may say that they've got 50% recycled cotton, but they don't really talk about where the other 50% has come from or what other pledges they're actually making to become more sustainably friendly. So it, it's not really actually becoming more environmentally friendly, but more just to try and make you buy their product. Um, and a lot of companies are doing this increasingly now that climate change has become such a well-known part of society. And it's just, I think, that Boris Johnson's speech really just reminded me of this issue. Wow, so quite a critical view on uh, Boris Johnson. But following on from this, Anushka is now going to go through a quick summary of events and agreements so far at COP26. Yeah, so I'm going to go through day by day the main things that have happened because obviously there's a lot of delegates there, there's a lot of discussions going on and we couldn't cover everything in this um, episode. But on the COP26 website, they do have a lot of information about what they're doing and agreements that are being made. So if you are more interested, that is a really good place to look. Um, and also news websites like BBC Economist have really good reporting on that if you're interested. But to start, I thought it could be helpful to give a bit of context on the values that are going to come up quite a lot because a lot of the agreements are to do with money and how much finance um, countries are willing to put forward. So I thought it would be helpful because as soon as you get into millions, billions, trillions, it becomes confusing. <laughs> Especially if you're not doing maths yeah. like, like we are. <laughs> to know... Um, how much it that actually is essentially so a billion is a thousand million and a trillion is a thousand billion so once you get into the trillions it's a lot of money so for some more context um mia motley who is the barbados prime minister did a really great talk at cop 26 and she highlighted that the central banks of the wealthiest countries have spent $25 trillion between them in quantitative easing in the last 13 years. So essentially quantitative easing is the government kind of injecting money into the economy to try and help um, like economic growth and stuff. So 
that has been spent by the wealthiest countries, $25 trillion, which kind of puts into context the money that, you know, could be being put forward by the wealthiest countries in the world, which has not even come close to being um, put forward in the, the COP conference. So the first day was day one, October 31st, and nothing uh, significant was agreed on this day, partly because a lot of the world leaders were in the G20 conference, um, which is most of the rich countries, and they're collectively responsible for around 80% of greenhouse gas emissions. And they were finishing their own meeting in Rome, so that kind of inhibited any um, massive agreements going on. So day two, which is November 1st, um, India, the Prime Minister of India, uh, Narendra Modi, I don't know if I said that right, but <laughs> laid out India's new climate pledges. And he pledged that India would reach net zero by 2070, and that by 2030, half of the country's electricity would be renewable, that it would cut its carbon dioxide emissions by 1 billion tonnes by 2030, but the commitment to reach net zero in 50 years by 2070 puts India one decade behind China, which is aiming for 2060, and two decades behind the 2050 target committed to by many Western countries. Mr Modi also said that um, developing countries should be provided with at least $1 trillion as soon as possible to help with adapting to climate change because it is the developing countries um, in particular that are being affected by climate change right now. So that was the main announcement on day one. So day two, no, that's not day one, that was day two. <laughs> um, so day three, which is November 2nd, uh, the American, the America and the European Union announced a global methane pledge to cut 30% of methane emissions by 2030, measured against 2020 levels. America and Canada said that they would introduce new regulations to cut the amount of methane emitted by their oil and gas industries. But China, which is the world's largest emitter of methane, was not among them. Um, and nor were India or Russia. Russia's gas industry also leaks a lot of methane into the air. So there was also an agreement on the world's forests. So 134 countries, which collectively cover 91% of the world's forest, have endorsed the Glasgow, the Glasgow Leaders Declaration on Forest and Land Use, which is committing to halt and reverse forest loss and land degradation by 2030. In return, countries will receive $19 billion worth of funding from both public and private sources. So day four, which is November 3rd, was based around finance. So Rishi Sunak announced that Britain will be the first net zero aligned financial centre. So this means that the governments will strengthen requirements from 2023, but not actually make it mandatory uh, for all financial institutions and companies listed on the British stock market to publish plans explaining how they'll decarbonise their operations, lending and investment, in line with Britain's pledge to be net zero by 2050. South Africa also signed a Just Energy Transition Partnership with America, Britain and the European Union, Union under which it will receive $8.5 billion in funding and grants in return for phasing out coal. Uh, South Africa generates more than 90% of its electricity from coal, so this will hopefully be quite helpful for them um, and they're the 12th largest emitter of carbon dioxide. So hopefully <laughs> this money is helpful and will reduce their emissions. 
Indonesia's finance minister also said that her country is prepared to close coal-fired power plants by 2040 if it receives an fin sufficient financial help. So day five, November 4th, was Energy Day. And um, the day began with activists in inflatable Pikachu costumes campaigning against Japan's coal industry. Um, I don't think Japan actually agreed to anything on that day, but it was quite a show. Um, so more than 40 countries, plus businesses and financial institutions, announced a, announced a pledge committing themselves to phasing out coal power for good. Britain promised to do their part um, to phase out coal by 2024, but the details of these phase outs were quite vague. So we're not entirely sure what will be happening with these plans. However, Japan, America, Australia, India, Russia, and the world's biggest coal user, China, did not sign this agreement. They have, however, committed to stop financing coal overseas, but it relies on it heavily for domestic power. On day six, which was November 5th, it was Youth and Public Empowerment Day. Um, there wasn't many agreements based around youth and public empowerment, but there were a lot of marches because um, this was on the Friday. So there was the Friday for Future March, but it was a, a massive one in Glasgow and Greta was there and there was quite a lot of um, protesting on this day. But on day six, um, 45 governments pledged urgent action and investment to protect nature and shift to more sustainable ways of farming. 95 high-profile companies from a range of sectors committed to be to being nature positive and agreeing to work towards halting and reversing the decline of nature by 2030. 26 governments signed pledges to repurpose agriculture to make it more climate friendly or to accelerate innovation in the sector. So America and the UAE claim that they will mobilize $4 billion in investment over the next five years in support of this. But neither agreement um, includes any concrete goals or mention the meat and dairy industry, which produce more greenhouse gas emissions than any other agricultural commodity. So then we had the weekend and started back on Monday, November 8th for day seven of the conference. This was adaptation um, and loss and damage day. So $232 million has been committed to the adaptation fund, which has more than doubled the previous highest contribution. Um, with 20 million coming from the UK. This, um, so other countries that were also involved were the USA, Canada, Sweden, uh, Germany, and many other ones. The UK also announced that 290 million pounds in new funding and adaptation um, will be contributed, including 274 million pounds for the Climate Action for a Resilient Asia programme. And then November 9th, which was day eight, was Gender Science and Innovation Day. So there was actually quite a lot around gender and climate change, which I feel like is not usually talked about that much. So I was happy to hear, considering we're at uh, all-girls school. Um, so Bolivia committed to promote the leadership of women and girls in various ways. Uh, Canada to ensure that 80% of its 5.3 billion climate investment were targeted towards gender equality outcomes. Ecuador committing to strengthen leadership, negotiation and decision-making capacities within women's organisations working on climate. Germany announced a new gender strategy. Sweden announced new measures to firmly embed gender equality within all their climate action. The UK set out um, how £165 million in funding will address the dual 
challenges of gender inequality and climate change. And the USA invest, is committed to investing at least $14 million of the Gender Equity and Equality Action Fund towards gender responsive climate programming and investing more than $20 million towards initiatives to increase, increase women's economic opportunities in the climate sector. So day nine, which is November 10th, um, and that was yesterday, so that's the last day that I'm gonna go up to. Um, but obviously, you know, keep reading, keep looking at what's going on. But this, uh, on November 10th, there was a coalition of companies and governments that said they would aim to make all new cars and vans sold emission-free by 2035 in rich countries and by 2040 elsewhere. The countries that signed up only represent a fifth of the global car market. So China, an example, for example, have abstained. So it's questionable how effective this, um, co uh, this agreement will be. China and the US released a surprise agreement called the China-US Joint Glasgow Declaration on Enhancing Climate Action in the 2020s. <laughs> So this was good to hear because China wasn't actually there, but they did come up with this agreement. Um, so because they are the world's top two greenhouse gas emitters and account for about one third of the global total, um, it's quite good that they're working together. And the statement acknowledges that current efforts are inadequate. And so the duo promised to work together to narrow the gap between their emissions um, and what science says is necessary to meet the Paris goals. There was also a draft of the decisions for COP26, which was released, which is the overarching text that will lay out the summit's decisions. So some of the things that this included were um, strengthening the Paris Agreement in several ways. For example, put it put a significant emphasis on the need to pursue the lower 1.5 degree temperature goal. The draft also urged countries to increase the ambition of the pledges they've made and for all countries to accelerate the phasing out of coal and subsidies for fossil fuels, though it, it, it fails to mention any actual dates. It also points out the very rapid and deep cuts in global emissions that will need to be made um, to keep below 1.5. And on the part of developing countries, there was not a lot about finance um, or any agreements to basically support the developing countries at the moment and the climate change difficulties that they're dealing with. However, it is very early days and the summit does not come to a close until Friday, um, but the talks tend to also run into Saturday. So there's still time for change. But as you can tell, a lot of the agreements uh, during COP have lacked some um, specific outlines of how they'll really like reach the goals that they are claiming to, that they want to reach. Um, so hopefully this is rectified in the um, summary that's put out and the agreements that are made, but I guess we'll see. So now I will hand over to Sophie, who will talk to you about um, what individual people said and kind of looking deeper into their talks. Yeah, so one of the most famous people who attended COP26 was David Attenborough, um, who you probably know for um, his work as, as a broadcaster and as and as an author, and he called on leaders to be motivated by hope rather than fear to avoid a climate catastrophe. So he said that everything we've achieved in the last 10,000 years has been enabled because of the climate stability during this time. He also said that the global temperature has not wavered over this period by more than either plus or minus one degree Celsius until now. 
We are already in trouble and the stability we are all dependent on is breaking. He particularly stressed that we must keep temperature rise to below 1.5 degrees Celsius, which was set out in the Paris Agreement. So Greta Thunberg also attended COP26 and you've probably heard of her who, as the 18-year-old climate activist who started the Fridays for Future movement. She said that the UK overstates how much it's done for the climate and that COP26 has essentially been a failure. She said that we cannot solve a crisis with the same methods that got us into it in the first place. We need to see immediate drastic uh, annual emission cuts unlike anything the world has seen before. The people in power can continue to live in their bubble filled with their fantasies like eternal growth on a finite planet and technological solutions that will suddenly appear seemingly out of nowhere and will erase all of these crises just like that. All the while, the world is still burning on fire and while the people living on the front lines are still bearing the brunt of the climate crisis. She argued that instead of making commitments to reductions in the carbon by 2030 or later, we should be committing to changes in the next five years. Do you think that she was, you know, a bit too outspoken and was quite harsh? Or do you think that it's necessary for people to be saying these things to kind of promote action? I mean, I think she's a very influential member in, in the climate change community. And I think that the way that she puts things does help to kind of push things forward. But I also think that people don't always take her seriously, particularly because she is so young. And um, I just hope that what she said does make a difference. And hopefully leaders will listen and start to work fast to help prevent climate change. Mm. So another person who attended COP26 was Prince William, and he also recently was a large part of the Earthshot Prize, which I'm going to talk about a bit now. So the Duke said that we must think differently and work hard to reduce our carbon emissions. So this year, the first Earthshot Prize was awarded. So it's a prize that's designed to incentivize change and help repair our planet over the next 10 years. It takes inspiration from President John F. Kennedy's Moonshot Prize, which united millions of people around an organising goal to put men on the moon and catalyse the development of new technology in the 1960s. The Earthshot Prize is centred around our five Earthshots, which are simple but ambitious goals for our planet, which, if achieved by 2030, will improve life for us all for generations to come and help prevent climate change. Five £1 million prizes will be awarded each year for the next 10 years, providing at least 50 solutions to the world's world's greatest environmental problems by 2030. So there's also a TV series on the BBC iPlayer, which is all about the Earthshot Prize and goes into detail about what the goals are and what we need to do to fix our climate. It's hosted by David Attenborough and Prince William, and it's a really great watch if you're interested in that kind of thing. Yeah, I've watched um, two of the episodes so far, but they're actually really helpful because at the start of the episode, they kind of explain the problem that is the theme of that episode. So you gain information of why this is a problem and hear people who are being individually affected and then get introduced to the shortlisted um, prize winners. So I highly recommend. So thanks for getting to the end of this week's episode. We know it was a bit longer, but we really wanted to make sure that you guys had a full understanding of what's going on at COP26 because it's very important. Now, if you didn't get enough of a flavour of what's going on through this podcast, there is also another COP26 podcast on Spotify which goes through each day um, in more detail. And then, of course, the Earthshot Prize and documentary, as Sophie Nanishka mentioned, which is really interesting. 
I also have a book recommendation. Um, if you want to know a bit more about climate change and its impacts and just a general overview and also what we might, well, should be doing, um, David Attenborough's book of his witness statement, I know he also made a movie, but the book is very informative and helpful and a really good starting point if anyone wants to read that. So thank you very much. Bye. 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 Bye.